So welcome everybody to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. And it's a great pleasure today to be talking to Nick Robbins. Nick joined the Grantham Research Institute in February 2018 as Professor in Practice for Sustainable Finance. And he leads the Sustainable Finance Research theme. The focus of Nick's work is on how to mobilize finance for a just transition, the role of central banks and regulators in achieving sustainable development, and how the financial system can support the restoration of nature. From 2014 to 2018, Nick was co-director of UN Environment's inquiry into a sustainable finance system. And as part of that led country activities in Brazil, India, Italy, the UK, and around the EU, as well as thematic work focused on investors insurance and green banking. And before joining UNEP, he was head of the Climate Change Center of Excellence at HSBC. And prior to that, was head of sustainable and responsible investment funds at Henderson Global Investors. Nick has also worked at the International Institute for Environment and Development, the European Commission, and the Business Council for Sustainable Development. And finally, he has a BA in History from Cambridge University and an MSc in International Relations from LSE. So huge welcome to you, Nick. Great to see you, and thanks very much for your time today. Great to be with you, Robin. And maybe you could start by just telling us what you mean by the phrase just transition. Yeah, this is uh, something which uh, I came across three years ago, in fact. So actually relatively recently, I've been working on climate change all my career back since uh, 1990. Uh, and I'd always seen the need to take action on climate change in the context of sustainable development. So obviously taking out environmental issues, the economic dimension, and also issues of social uh, justice. But I think really it was only sort of three years ago that I, I think uh, the realization came to me that actually the climate community had generally failed to properly address issues of, of justice in uh, in terms of uh, achieving uh, uh, climate action, whether in terms of driving emissions down to zero or making uh, communities more resilient to climate change. That generally the climate community had failed in properly addressing uh, the social justice uh, dimension. And that was partly response to sort of external events, the election of President Trump uh, and his ability to bring onto his side uh, coal workers who quite unsoundly feared for their jobs and for their livelihoods uh, if action on climate change was going to be taken. So I was really thinking about how uh, myself and the work I've been doing for, for 20, 30 years on climate change, how I could improve my effectiveness uh, on this. And, and actually with uh, a group of finance experts uh, and so on, we, we met at uh, Fintorn. Um, and we're really thinking about how uh, sort of investors, uh, ethical investors, responsible investors and others could respond to that. We had a, um, a, a member from the, the labor movement there, von der Brunsting, who highlighted this, this, this phrase, the just transition. Um, and uh, that has a long pedigree. Uh, it comes out of the US labor movement and goes back actually in, t in terms of action on achieving sort of environmental progress in terms of toxic chemicals. So actually, as we achieve environmental progress, make sure that the burden of change does not fall on those least able to bear it. So workers, communities, and, and so on. Um, so it has a long tradition and it's really now risen up the agenda on climate change um, and is in the Paris Agreement. Um, and over the last three years, I've been really thinking about sort of what it means in, in various different dimensions, particularly for investors, particularly for banks, and also particularly for uh, the UK in a sense, particularly at its sort of very 
tough times sort of around Brexit and also for developing countries such as uh, India. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's great to bring this social justice element into, into the climate conversation. And I'm curious about what you're noticing in terms of your role in finance, sustainable finance. What are some of the initiatives that are inspiring you around the just transition from a financial perspective? So one of the things is that actually the finance sector is increasingly aware of, 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 of issues of climate change from a risk perspective, uh, a uh, perspective of opportunity. And generally, the finance sector sort of looks at sustainability according to the trinity of ESG, environment, social, governance. And it's a very sort of helpful sort of ready reckoner that actually can really disable our thinking um, because clearly climate change is an environmental issue. Uh, but the transition to a zero carbon economy is not an environmental issue. It's a process of structural, economic, social, cultural, uh, technological change. Uh, and really, until recently, the, the, the sort of the S of ESG was completely silent. Um, so the work uh, we've been doing at Grantham, uh, at the LSE, uh, in partnership with colleagues at Harvard University, the Principles of Responsible Investment, and also the International Trade Union Confederation, is to set out why investors uh, should uh, be uh, supporting the just transition. So ensuring as we make this transition is done in a, a socially just way and what they can do about this. Now, we started this work in um, 2018. It was very much uh, at the edge. It was very much seen as an edgy, marginal issue uh, and so on. And as we did the work, I think the external sort of geopolitical environment changed, and also investors realizing that actually they needed to connect environmental and social. So for example, we had the, the, the rise of the Gilets Jaunes in, in, in France. Uh, so we had President Macron doing a good technocratic thing, introducing a carbon tax, raising the cost of, of diesel, very sort of good technocratic thing, but had not thought at all about the social implications of that. Uh, and we had the response and, 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 and so on. So I think that, so external environment has driven this uh, up, the, up, up the agenda. Um, and I think also investors and financiers are realizing that the scale of what we need to do to get to a zero carbon economy really means that uh, the transition has to be fair and seem to be fair. So we now have about 150 different investors around the world with 10 trillion in assets committed to supporting a just transition, which is really uh, quite extraordinary when we started with this sort of quite edgy, quite philosophical concept called the Just Transition two or three years ago. Yeah, that's fantastic, Nick. And what kind of things are they doing? So I think uh, a number of things that, that investors uh, can do. So by investors, I'm thinking about pension funds, I'm thinking about insurance companies and so on. Um, and they are starting to take action across a number of different areas. So um, one of them would be in terms of shareholder engagement. Uh, increasingly, investors are making clear to the companies they own what their expectations are on climate change and so on. And this is now starting to include the just transition. So here in the UK, investors have come together um, to uh, engage and set expectations with Drax, a, a major uh, power station utility um, uh, with a big uh, coal-fired power station in, in Yorkshire. Uh, producing about 5% of the uh, UK's electricity. This is coal-fired, moving to use of biomass, which has been very controversial from a sustainability point of view. And these investors are very clearly saying to, to Drax, 
um, that they have expectations about the way that this process is managed, both from an environmental but also a social dimension. So that sort of setting of expectations through shareholder engagement is one area. The second is perhaps also just uh, different ways of allocating their capital. Um, and here there are a number of different areas, um, uh, particularly thinking about uh, different uses of, of, of bonds. Um, so these are sort of packages of, of, of debt, let's say, which are issued to investors. And these can be targeted to environmental and social purposes, so so-called green bonds, social bonds. And that is, that, that is something I think which uh, investors are particularly interested in. There's now um, a, a growth in a sort of crowdfunded green bonds, a group called Abundance is uh, working with local authorities to crowdfund municipal green bonds to support their climate emergency areas, which would take account of uh, just transition. Um, and one thing we're uh, advocating for is the UK government should issue uh, a series of uh, sovereign bonds whose proceeds are uh, targeted to achieve the just transition in the UK, both climate action and the, the government's sort of phrase of leveling up. So in the UK sense, you have sort of climate action plus leveling up equals uh, just transition. And this question of the sovereign bond is now becoming so much more important with the coronavirus crisis because governments are gonna be issuing large amounts of debt to investors. And so making sure that this debt is actually linked to environmental social progress will be very important. Right, and that's a beautiful segue into what the impact has been on your work and on the just transition movement, if you like, and also on the climate conversation as a whole of the coronavirus. So has it really knocked it sideways or do you feel like many of the approaches that we need to take to the virus are also the same as the approaches we need to take to climate? Maybe you could just talk for a moment about the, the link between these two challenges we face. Yeah, you know, clearly this is a, the coronavirus crisis is a very raw crisis. I mean, as, as we speak, 150,000 people have lost their lives. There is immense uh, social and economic suffering, particularly in developing countries. Uh, and tens of millions of people are going to lose their jobs as a result of the stabilization um, measures that are being put in place. So this is a very serious shock, probably going to be the worst uh, economic crisis since the 1930s. Um, so I suppose I've seen sort of two ways in which sort of climate action and also sort of just transition is being addressed. The first, interestingly, is, is that the coronavirus crisis has revealed the extent of fragility and precarious work in our societies, and actually the, the imperative of com particularly companies actually uh, being responsible in terms of the way they, they manage their staff, their suppliers, and, and so on. So, so one of the things that the coronavirus crisis has highlighted is actually the, the phrase of the just transition has come, has moved up the agenda. And investors, I think, that might have been a little bit cautious about it, maybe concerned about they might have political implications or whatever, are now seeing that actually um, if we are going to make progress on, on, on climate change, that this question of sort of social justice and inclusion is going to have to be even more front and centre. So I think that's that's one one thing we're seeing. On the other hand, clearly, th this is a time of of, of disruption, uh, and clearly the sort of short term priority of saving lives and sort of stabilising the economy is uh, leading to some inevitable. Uh, pushing back of other other issues. Um, so, for example, um, uh, the the COP26 uh, conference, which was due to be scheduled in November, 
2020 is now going to be held in 2021. So there's some, been some ine inevitable sort of rescheduling. Uh, and so one of the things that I think is really important now is to see as we come out of this crisis, how do we ensure that that is a sustainable uh, recovery? Um, and that we're, we're not actually going to be sort of going back to uh, the same old economy, which we knew was both highly environmentally destructive and also uh, was built on a number of quite uh, unequal uh, systems. Right. And as you know, this podcast series is about leadership. So maybe you could talk to us a bit about where you see effective leadership in this domain, like both in, in terms of the climate work that you have been doing, but also this particular moment where it feels like some countries and some leadership is saying, well, now in a way we have an excuse to ditch some of our climate commitments because we need to focus everything on the virus. And other people are saying, well, the virus gives us the opportunity to rebuild green economy and, and a green society. Where are you seeing the kind of leadership that we need at this time? Well, I mean, I, I think there are a number of uh, a number of people who are, who stand out. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, obviously Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, Antonio Guterres from uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations. I mean, he, I think, was actually the first sort of global leader, really, to highlight um, not just this sort of opportunity, which might sound a little bit trivial, but responsibility to recover better. That actually, I think there's, it's, it's easy for us to think to sort of think in a sense of we want to get back to normal. But when we realize actually normal was not uh, for many, many people and for many ecosystems was not an optimum place to return to. So I think he, he's been, uh, been highlighting that. We've had uh, Fiona Reynolds, uh, who's the chief executive of the Principles of Responsible Investment, um, giving very sort of clear signals um, to the investor community about how responsible investors should be behaving um, uh, during this crisis. Very clear signals, for example, that they should be supporting responsible practice, particularly at the, the current the immediate crisis in terms of workplace practices, uh, support for staff, even if this is at the cost of short-term returns, which obviously investors use, use, uh, are used to focusing on and actually thinking that this we got to actually re prioritize in terms of short and, 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 and long term. So I think that's been, uh, that's been very, uh, very useful. Yeah. And I'm curious also where you see the marriage of the kind of grassroots movements and the kind of top down movement. So you have some of the political leadership that you mentioned, some of the kind of campaigning organizations, if you like, in the, in the middle. And of course, before this was happening, Greta Thunberg and, and others who are more involved in kind of Extinction Rebellion, civil disobedience movements were gaining a lot of momentum. Now the virus has meant you can't go out into the streets and demonstrate and you can't do any of that work. We don't hear anything about her anymore. And we don't hear much about Extinction Rebellion either at the moment. And I'm curious, firstly, if you know what's happening in those domains, but also how do you see the marriage of the kind of bottom-up movement and top-down in terms of leadership and, and what's really bringing about the kind of changes that we need? I mean, I, I think, I mean, maybe if we step back a little bit, I mean, and, and look to 2019, which was the, the year in which uh, the climate emergency was, became, became sort, of, uh, sort of a household term. And that was largely the combination of sort of bottom-up action, extinction rebellion and so on, building on very sobering, very terrifying in many ways, research from the intergovernmental plan of climate change, prompting through uh, non-violent 
direct action prompting the government, the UK government, to declare a climate emergency, followed by local authorities and businesses and so on up and down the country and around the world. Uh, and so that, 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 that hasn't gone away, I think. Uh, and that recognition that we are in a sort of uh, a chronic climate emergency hasn't gone away. And clearly we're now in a acute sort of immediate uh, coronavirus uh, emergency. All the polls I'm seeing uh, is that people uh, want uh, action on, on climate change. Uh, if we actually think about the links between coronavirus and climate change, sadly, there are, there are, there are, there are some. Um, coronavirus is a so-called zoonotic um, uh, disease. It, it transfers from animals to humans. Uh, and a number of the, 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 the drivers for in the increasing number of zoonotic diseases are deforestation, illegal wildlife trade and climate change. So I think we don't have to go too far to recognize the sort of the roots of this uh, disease in sort of ecological uh, degradation. So um, I think th that, that gives us a sense of sort of why we should connect the two. And then I think there is this question about how we recover better. Um, in, in the global financial crisis, um, when I was working at HSBC, we evaluated that perhaps about 16% of the stimulus programs the governments came up with, China, South Korea, uh, US, European countries, 16% of that stimulus was in the green economy. So that's great, renewables, uh, building efficiency, public transport. Problem was that 84% wasn't. Uh, and actually you then did see a rebound in, in, in pollution uh, in China uh, and also a rebound in, in carbon emissions. So I think that the key now is that 100% of the way we recover out of this crisis has to be aligned with the Paris Agreement and particularly given the precariousness, social precariousness and, and injustice that is being revealed in this crisis, it has to be linked to a just transition. So I think that's a way of sort of connecting sort of the bottom up and the top down, which means a lot of work and a lot of collective thinking needs to be done uh, in, the, in the coming weeks and months to make sure, sure that this responsibility to recover better is not missed. Are you hopeful that it will be? That this connected up thinking will happen? I mean, where do you stand on the kind of optimism? Yes, we can make it. Yes, it's going to come together. And, and uh, sometimes what feels like pessimism, realism, that actually we're heading into major structural collapse and we just need to prepare for that and kind of man the lifeboats. Well, I mean, I, I, I sort of, my trite way of thinking about this is I sort of have a sense of sort of tactical optimism and strategic despair, that I think that we can, we can do a lot, we can do, there's, there's no reason why we can't um, connect our economy, our society, our, our financial system with a just sustainable world. That, 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 that there's nothing, there's no technological constraints, there's no financial, we've got the money, there's no financial constraints and so on. Um, it's a question of, 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 of will, of design, uh, and rethinking many of our sort of preconsumption, pre, 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 preconceived assumptions. Um, so I'm relatively optimistic that we can make the, these changes. My, my concern and where my sort of strategic sort of pessimism lies is whether these will add up to be um, sufficient, um, particularly as we have this sort of... Uh, so this, this reaction towards sort of neo-nationalism and so on, whether that's in sort of Brazil with Bolsonaro or, or with Trump and so on. And I think that's a recognition we now face is actually the, in a sense, the, the responses to these sort of series of crises is one is sort of 
the use of reason, the use of solidarity, the use of sort of fresh thinking on one hand, and the other is actually the sort of the the sort of the, the pooling the wagons, hunkering down, focusing on the immediate, uh, blaming others, and so on. And those those two narratives are in are in deep uh, tension and conflict. Um, and unfortunately, at the moment, uh, the neo-nationalism is icy, is in the ascendant. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I want to just go a little bit deeper also into this question of the role of government at this time, because there's this kind of, there's a need for a coordinated response. And then some people are experiencing this as a ceding of power to kind of more and more authoritarian governments. And now you can also start to already feel pushback against that, you know, whether it's the battle in the United States between the states and federal government and no one's going to tell us what to do. And we think it's safe to kind of go out and, and socialize and we're going to do that. And no one's going to tell us not to. You can even see it in, in where I live, as you know, in Fintorn, in Fintorn village, a little fishing village in the north of Scotland. There's some graffiti on the walls in the village saying, basically, this is our village and kind of keep out, you know, don't come here for your exercise. So, so there's a kind of, I'm, I'm curious how you see that. Also, one of the criticisms of Extinction Rebellion, who I have a lot of time for, and many people in these podcast series have a lot of respect for, for what they've been able to achieve. And some people are saying, yeah, but you're asking kind of government to do it all for us, you know? So wondering how that also plays out into your work around the just transition. Where's the role of government appropriate and where can it feel like we're ceding power to increasingly authoritarian regimes? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I've said that that's, that's a, it's a big, a big, big, big challenge. And I think actually sort of how, how we see government as being ours in a sense. I mean, I think government is ours, particularly in democratic countries, because we do, we do vote and we have other way, ways of, sort of holding us accountable and not just sort of contract, and we contribute uh, through taxes. But I suppose the state can often be quite distant. Um, and as we've seen with, um, sadly, a number of the, the ways in which sort of coronavirus lockdown has been uh, implemented, um, it can go from the sort of the trivial sort of um, narkiness of, um, of, of officials or police sort of um, overstepping the mark, which can be annoying, but actually can be also profoundly uh, disturbing, I think, in, in some of the ways in which the, 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 the police has been very brutal in the way it's been applying the, the lockdown. So I think we do need to be uh, cautious uh, about that. Um, I think the, the, what we need to do is, is, is see how, how we're going to create this sort of new ecosystem of, of transformation. That's, 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 that's the challenge, which will need uh, government, because government has the sort of regulatory authority. Government is one of the few bodies that can try to universalize things, whether that's healthcare provision or whether that's sort of climate change uh, policy or, and so on. So we need government there. But I think we also clearly need citizens to be very actively involved, particularly at the local level. One of the things about the Just Transition is it's very, very place-based. Um, and I think, if, again, if one of the huge failings of the last 50 years of globalization and one of the sort of, I think, roots into the reason why we have this neo-nationalism um, is the sort of disregard and actually sort of undermining of place by globalization. Uh, and so, uh, that, that, so we need both the sort of government at the framework, but we need that ability for places, for communities, local authorities, local businesses, and so on, to actually have an ability to design uh, the transition plans according to their own perspectives and, and, and needs. 
and then we we need um, yeah business and, and and finance to be uh, supportive uh, as well. So I think it's how we create that sort of new uh, new ecosystem. So it's not a sort of top down uh, Stalinist model. But neither is it a a free for all. I think that's a real challenge, and I, and I think that's one of the things which is going to puzzle us for a while. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think the other topic that I want to kind of surface for a moment is about how you manage your own feeling state because you know we're talking also in times of challenge <clears throat> there's a lot of fear around the virus there's been hope and despair around the climate you said already that you've used the word despair and also hope how do you manage your kind of internal response to these very interesting unprecedented fluctuating circumstances that we find ourselves in do you have a practice for that do you would, would you see that as part of leadership at the moment i mean i would certainly feel like part of leadership is to know how to manage our internal state so that we can be effective externally no i think that's that's that's, that's uh, very wise i mean I, I don't have a sort of formal practice with a with a big fancy name but i go for long walks <laughs> so right. that's the way i i try and do this because I think um, actually, I don't know. I think we're generally sort of walking creatures, and uh, I generally, sort of the thinking process is, is is particularly helpful. So one of the things is actually how we ration our um, our access to these fantastic platforms we're using now, Zoom, because actually I think they, these things when we are separated physically, actually these platforms are technically very useful, but I think also very tiring. Um, they're very tiring, and so we got to we got we got to be using them quite sort of sparingly and not just thinking they can substitute precisely what we do face to face so they're very useful um so i think that sort of yes i think being able to be to be to to, to be physical uh, and to to sort of uh, go for go for long walks and reflect i've been thinking quite a lot uh, about the sort of the last few pages of Jim Bendel's uh, deep adaptation uh, paper which has obviously been hugely influential but the sort of three questions that he leaves us with is sort of which i think has been again brought to the center of our consciousness by this uh, coronavirus crisis is what do we want to take through to the other side and, and be that we can't we're not going to be able to take everything so what are the things we want to take through what are the things we recognize and, and willing to to leave behind um including maybe our sort of our values and our preconceptions and actually our priorities some of our priorities we're going to have to leave leave behind and the third is um, I think he poses that what do we want to restore? But I was thinking, what do we want to renew? Because we might want to restore things of the past, but we may not need to sort of think about new things. I mean, again, I'm realizing that my skill set is actually very limited. I'm, I, I'm sort of, I can work quite, uh, quite well in sort of um, high finance and sustainability thinking, but actually on the transition side, there are many skills I'm going to need to know, much more uh, practical tools like. Fritz Humack always was delighted by being called a crank because he thought cranks were very useful pieces of toolkit. And I think that's the thing, maybe there's some new skills and practices um, that we're gonna need to uh, learn. So I imagine you've been pondering these questions for yourself and I'm wondering maybe we could close with anything that you're noticing about the view personally, what you would be wanting to kind of take forward, let go of, renew, and maybe also for the movement, like what are you noticing in the just transition movement or in the climate conversation as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the things is 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 um, and it's a phrase I've been uh, talking about with Helen Wildsmith is is actually this is a moment of radical reprioritization. The, 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 obviously, we generally 
think that our lives are, 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 are well ordered or we like to think they are, but actually many things that we do are maybe just nice or, or routine. Uh, and maybe we need to find ways where we can reprioritize on things which are, are significant and actually do contribute um, both, I suppose, to our individual fulfillment, but also particularly this time to uh, the benefit of others and, and to express solidarity in, in, in that sense. So that's, in a sense for me, um, I think sort of a recommitment to themes of the just transition uh, is, is, is one, uh, one area. Um, I think that means, again, uh, while that is a global theme, I think, again, it's, it's, it, things are sort of leave behind. Um, I think is, is, in a sense, is the sort of um, particularly sort of uh, more focus on sort of international work. I mean, my career has been uh, very international working in different countries. Um, and necessarily because of the coronavirus um, research trips that we've, we've planned in Brazil and other places have been have been cancelled. But I think also it's made me realise that actually sort of a focus here in, 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 the, in, in the UK and Europe is perhaps, so that's maybe sort of leaving things behind. Um, and as I said, perhaps one other thing is actually thinking through what are those sort of additional skills that I'll need to, uh, to, to, to practice. Um, I, sort of, I, I'm getting a sense I need to be a little bit more practical <laughs> um, in actually being able to apply uh, some of these things. Yeah, that's wonderful. Nick, it also inspires me. My, my wife and I have started growing food for the first time on any significant level. So our living room upstairs is full of tomato plants and cucumber plants and all sorts of other things. And somehow I think it's right. It's a time for renewal and what are the skills we need moving forward. And maybe it's also about thinking about or feeling into what is really essential, like and, and, and using essential as a term that's really about our essence. Like mm. Times like this when more things maybe fall away and we're more stripped away to what is really our essence, then from that place, what is really essential in our life? We could call it radical reprioritization also. Right. Right. It's, really a, it's really a time for that. Yes, no, I think I think that's, that's a nice way of actually unpacking essential, isn't it? Because we have essential workers now, and I think those sort of ourselves thinking about what is essential for us. And we realize that many things that uh, we spend time on aren't, aren't essential. And, and therefore, this is a huge challenge to, to routine. Yeah, and habit, and many habits are good, um, many habits are less good. Uh, and uh, I can remember when I was writing my book on the East India Company, I realized in my life I had a lot of what I call grey time, um, which actually didn't really do much. I mean, it was uh, reading newspapers, uh, watching TV, going, going to films, and they're all sort of nice things and maybe necessary things, but they're kind of grey time. And actually, if you look at that through your life, you actually realize a lot of your time is actually spent on things which are, perfect, again, perfectly sort of reasonable things, but actually non-essential uh, and are sort of padding, perhaps. Not that we should be constantly working, because uh, I think that's not helpful either, but actually we should be spending perhaps more time, um, uh, more time sort of, as you say, looking at the, the essence. And again, I'd be very interested in your thoughts. Um, yeah, how we, how we do that, really, how we, how we carve out that, that, that space to, to look at the essence. Yeah, that could be the beginning of another big conversation, but maybe we'll close this right. one for now. But I think, I think, I think, I mean, my my short response to that would be to find the time as you do through walking, I do through meditation, and also through walking and reading poetry, which I know you also love and I love. Spaces that kind of open up different parts of our brain and kind of allow ourselves to digest our daily experience, so that we can sense into what is really our calling, what is mm -hmm. really essential, what is really our contribution at this time. 
Right. For me, those, those are some of the ways that, that, that I kind of drill down deeper into what's really happening in me. And, and something that my teacher, Thomas Hubel, has also talked about recently, which I find very helpful, is to distinguish between the short-term kind of tribal survival response, which says, of course, we're going to look after each other. Mm. And to distinguish that part of us, like I'm doing more you know, calls for free and reaching out to more and more people probably than I've ever done before, which is great. I mean, that feels like a calling at this time. But what is, what is a kind of short-term survival tribal response that we've learned over thousands of years? Like in a time of crisis, we need to stick together. And what is a more embedded, longer-term movement to wider circles of compassion that we can really live into regardless of the circumstances around us? And I find yes. myself kind of really reflecting on, on that distinction also at the moment. I think that's very profound because I think actually one of the things that maybe I have felt um, is the sort of the thinning of my relationships, actually. Um, whereas before, um, actually, uh, I was actually able to, for example, deal a lot more with some of the, the trade union uh, partners we're working with and, and people across the country. We've been working in Yorkshire and in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland and so on. And, and that, 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 those people are still there, but there's been a, a thinning of those relationships, I think. Um, and yes, we could do Zoom and so on. But actually, that, that, I think the, the sort of focus at the moment has been on sort of priority and actually i think sometimes sort of those those broader relationships have uh, can go by the wayside which is which is a risk i think um that, that's something i'm very conscious of yeah thank you so much it's been a really i really enjoyed this conversation a lot i feel like we've touched lots of different levels and also yeah feel your your kind of heart and contribution to this movement that you've been working at for many years so thanks for your time today nick and thank you. wishing you every success going forward with what is really a critical issue around the just transition we can't just do a transition without it being just it won't be sustainable or lasting or or even what the world needs so thanks so much for your work on that and wishing you every thanks, thanks to you, Robert. And, and as you know, this was something that was uh, conceived in a, a session which you were chairing up in, uh, up in Fintorn. So uh, the roots uh, go all the way back to Northern Scotland. So thanks, thanks. again. <laughs>